You have reached Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey, a ministry and podcast of the Discover Young Adults Ministry at the Preston Crest Church of Christ in Dallas, Texas. We meet at 945 on Sunday mornings, and we have small groups all throughout the week. We are located at Preston Road and Highway 635 in North Dallas. My name is Jacob Hawk. I'm the Young Adults Minister and the host of this podcast. It doesn't matter if you are single, dating, if you want to be dating, if you're married, if you want to be married, or if you're divorced, or if you're trying to figure out at what stage of life you are passing through. At the Discover Young Adults Ministry, we want to help you discover life, discover love, and discover the Lord. If I can help you or serve you in any way, or if I can pray for you, please email me at jacob at pressandcrest.org. Welcome back to Road Talk, Navigating Your Journey. We are glad that you're joining us again today for another episode on the podcast and specifically another discussion on how we got the Bible. So far, we've discussed two different areas of study in a focus of how we got the Bible, the first one being the New Testament manuscripts, how they came to be, and secondly, uh, what we considered last week, textual criticism, which helps explain why there are different translations of the New Testament, why you might have a footnote down at the bottom of the page of your Bible saying that in some places it's phrased this way or it appears this way in other manuscripts. Anytime you're looking at footnotes at the bottom of the pages of your Bible, you are engaging in a study of textual criticism. Today, we're going to spend just a few moments talking about the restoration of ancient manuscripts. How did they last through time and then make their way into what we call the Bible today? Just as a reminder, the reason we're covering this study of how we got the Bible is because of the request of the Discover Young Adults Ministry at Preston Crest. I asked them to submit topics that they wanted to hear more about through the summer, and one of the topics that kept coming up in their submissions was a study on how we got the Bible, and so I've worked to provide this study for them in the month of June. If you are a young adult listening to this in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, we would love to have you any Sunday morning at Preston Crest. We meet at 945 in Preston Place, uh, Suite 130. It's very easy to find, and we would love to meet you then. Later on in the summer, we will be talking about dating and marriage, as well as some contemporary issues in culture. And finally, we will end a study in the month of October uh, by discussing some of the more confusing Bible conversations that people have. But back to today on how we got the Bible. Some big questions, I've already mentioned this, but some big questions that are often addressed in a series of this nature. How did the Bible come together? How do we know it's reliable? And how do we know it's complete? We will specifically discuss the completion of the New Testament in a couple of weeks when we talk about the New Testament canon. But today we're going to talk a little bit more about how we know it's reliable. And as always, I would encourage you to purchase the book if you do not have it already, How We Got the Bible by Dr. Neil Lightfoot. You can find it on Amazon. It's about $12. It is a great resource if you want to go much deeper than we're going on this podcast or in our Sunday morning Bible class at the Discover Young Adults Ministry. Well, let's talk a moment about the restoration of manuscripts. 
I think it's important for us to understand the chronological order of how manuscripts were dispersed to the general public. Obviously, first of all, you have the originals, which were written by the apostles and uh, other great heroes of the Bible, such as Mark and Luke. But after these apostles pass away and after they are no longer writing manuscripts, how does the word get around? Well, you have copies of the originals, which were produced by the scribes. That was their job, to copy what had been written letter by letter, word by word. And for many hundreds of years, scribes would do this. They did it for the Old Testament. They did it for the New Testament. We've talked about the Sinaitic manuscript already in this study. We've talked about the Vatican manuscript. These were copies of the originals. The Sinaitic manuscript was discovered in 1859 by Constantine von Tischendorf, just by providence in a uh, visit of his to St. Catherine's Monastery at the base of Mount Sinai, but the Sinaitic manuscript would have been a copy of the original manuscripts. But when you go beyond the copies of the originals, you have what I'm calling today the copies of the copies. And that's where we get into the discussion of the restoration of manuscripts. They didn't have the printing press yet, so to have these things widely dispersed, the copies had to be copied. And so we refer to it as the copies of the copies. Now, to restore manuscripts and to figure out which ones are reliable and which ones aren't, two main approaches can be taken. Dr. Lightfoot, in his book on how we got the Bible, explained it this way on page 104. Dr. Lightfoot said, and I quote, We can select one manuscript and make it the standard text, or we can consult a number of manuscripts and authorities and by comparison reconstruct a text which we feel like is the original. If we choose the former course, we are destined to failure. For no one manuscript is free from obvious scribal errors. If we choose the latter course, we will be assured of getting much closer to the original New Testament autographs. End quote. Let me summarize what Dr. Lightfoot is suggesting. We could only consult one manuscript as the main source of authority and then just move forward from that one manuscript. Or we can look at several different sources, find a consensus, and then move forward from those similarities. And according to Dr. Lightfoot, and I would agree with him, that is the much more noble and much more reliable approach. And we do this in other areas of life. Think about a court of law when they are considering testimony about a crime or some other case. Eyewitness testimony is very good, and you can get a verdict simply based on eyewitness testimony, but it's even better to add to the eyewitness testimony fingerprints, DNA, ballistics, a timeline, a paper trail. The more evidence you can present, the stronger verdict you can receive. And so what Dr. Lightfoot is advocating is that it's better to have several different sources to gain a reliable approach to the New Testament than to have just one main manuscript. So when looking for a consensus, several sources need to be considered. And there are three main sources that Dr. Lightfoot offers as being reliable. The first one is obviously manuscripts. 
Manuscripts in the ancient world were often designated by regions. There were the Alexandrian manuscripts, the Syrian manuscripts, Byzantine manuscripts, Western manuscripts, and that was based on where they had been discovered. Some regions are regarded as more authoritative and reliable than others, the Alexandrian manuscripts being considered to be the most reliable. Secondly, beyond the manuscripts, you could also consider different versions. Manuscripts were copied into common languages of the day, Syriac, Latin, Coptic, Ethiopic, Georgian. This is not the go-dogs Georgian, but rather that part of the world. Comparing the different languages, according to Dr. Lightfoot, provides a holistic interpretation of what the ancient manuscripts originally said. The third category is the early Christian writers, sometimes known as the church fathers. Early Christian writers or church fathers likely held in their possession manuscripts that were older than the first set of copies of the originals, older than the Sinaitic manuscript, the Vatican manuscript, the Alexandrian manuscript. And what the early Christian writers wrote, or church fathers, what they recorded should be at least considered as authoritative and reliable because they lived very close to the date of these occurrences. A good example of this is the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. We dealt with that in the episode on textual criticism, but many Bibles will note, because of textual criticism, that the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 did not appear in many original manuscripts, but because it was a common story of the church, according to the church fathers, church historians, church writers, because this story was passed down orally and was considered to be authoritative, it is now included in our Bibles today. That comes from the source of Christian writers and church fathers. So to summarize what Dr. Lightfoot said on page 104, he makes this statement on page 106, and I quote, The manuscripts, the versions, Citations from early Christian writings. These are the tools available when we undertake to restore the primitive text of the New Testament. Using these tools with discretion, listen to this. It is possible to come so near the original autographs that we can all but grasp them in our hands. End quote. To rephrase, just like with the analogy of a court of law, having eyewitness testimony is good. Having eyewitness testimony and fingerprints, DNA, paper trail, ballistics, even better. So when we talk about restoring New Testament manuscripts, having the original manuscripts is good. But it's even better to have manuscripts from different parts of the world, to have them in different languages, to have the early Christian writings from the early Christian church fathers. And in the discipline of the Restoration Manuscripts, there are a few big names, big players that I want to mention through history, which really gave this discipline some form. The first one is Erasmus of Rotterdam in the year 1516 A.D. Erasmus published the first printed Greek New Testament in 1516. He also attached essays and commentary on specific passages. It was around 1,000 pages in length. 
But the reason it was so notable and significant was because it was the first printed Greek New Testament uh, shortly following the printing press, which was able to get material dispersed to vast amounts of people. Following Erasmus of Rotterdam, there was a gentleman named Robert Estienne in 1551. Robert Estienne Latinizes his name to Stephanus. He is known in biblical history and biblical scholarship more commonly as Stephanus. Robert Estienne, or Stephanus, builds on Erasmus's work by dividing the text into verses in 1551. So today, whenever you're sitting in a Bible class or listening to a sermon, and the teacher or the preacher makes this statement, look with me at verse 12, you can thank Robert Estienne Stephanus for that. He was the one who originally divided the text into verses in the year 1551. Stephanus, Robert Estienne, produces four editions of the New Testament, with the third edition being the most significant, known as the Royal Edition. The royal edition came to be known as the Received Text, which would stand for several hundred years. No one would try to improve upon it. The King James Version, which would be translated into English in 1611 by the order of King James of England, the King James Version was based on the Received Text, which was in the Greek, but it was based on the Received Text, the work of Stephanus, Robert Estienne. Then if we fast forward a few hundred years to the year 1881, I'll mention two gentlemen by the name of Westcott and Hort, Brooke Foss Westcott, Fenton, John Anthony Hort. They were two Cambridge scholars who set out to create a superior translation of the New Testament than the received text of Robert Estienne Stephanus from 1551. On May the 12th, 1881, after 30 years of work, Westcott Hort published the New Testament in the original Greek, separate from Erasmus or the received text of Stephanus in 1551. A few months later, on September 4th, 1881, Westcott Hort published the introduction and the appendix to the New Testament in Greek where they explained the reasoning for their publication. In the same year, not because of Westcott Hort, but a separate group would publish the English Revised Version of the New Testament, and they would agree with the Westcott Hort approach, which argued that the received text was not the superior text, rather what they would produce. But the Westcott Hort text gave rise to the more modern translations that you might have today, such as the English Standard Version, the NIV, the New King James Version. It was separated from the received text, which was really what the New King James, or what the King James Version was written from in the beginning. But the point is, is that as time went on, people built on the work of their predecessors. They continued to restore the manuscripts to get them closer to what they thought would be the original, and today we see the fruit of their labor. In the next episode, we will finish the study by talking about how the New Testament canon was finalized, why some books are in the New Testament, why some books aren't, 
I hope that you've enjoyed this study. I recognize that this is a different type of study, different type of uh, podcast than we normally do on Road Talk. But it is good from time to time to dig a little bit deeper into the scholastic world of the biblical scholars to see what they're thinking and help translate that into uh, how the modern man and the normal man approaches a study of the Bible. As always, God bless. Keep your eyes on heaven. And we look forward to talking with you next time. Amen.